This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Welcome one and all to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm Andy Wilson, along with host Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Andy, how are you doing, sir? Good. And also the legendary Hugh Simon as well. Hello, Hugh. Dane's legendary too, but hello, Andrew. He is. I, don't, I know. I, I just like to say legendary for one of us. Okay, thank you. So our guest today is 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 basically he's an Indiana guy. So this is kind of a cool opportunity for all of us because we're we're always sitting in Indiana, usually talking to people that aren't in Indiana, aren't from Indiana. And though Kyle's not technically sitting in Indiana as we talk to him, he's from Indiana. So this is an Indiana Hoosiers conversation today with Kyle Cook. Um, great guitar player. He spent the bulk of his musical life as the lead guitarist for Matchbox 20, a multi-Grammy nominated band that sold nearly 16 million albums, 16 million, and toured the globe and is one of the most popular American rock bands from the past 20 plus years. Kyle re- has released a lot of his own solo stuff and also headed up a lot of his own bands, including The New Left and Rivers and Rust. Great release a couple of years ago called uh, Wolves. He's also recorded with Mick Jagger and John Waite, uh, amongst others. Um, he's also a study musician with an all-American Midwestern background. He's a guy with a penchant for classic rock, which we'll dig deep into that because I, I can already tell the passion for classic rock before we jumped into the, the podcast here. But of course, he's from Frankfurt, Indiana, which before we jump too far ahead of ourselves and talk music, let's open up and talk a little bit about Frankfurt and let's talk about their mascot, if you don't mind. I think that's a perfect place to start. Yeah, let's start with that. Um, well, I'm a hot dog. <laughs> That's uh, all we need. That's yeah. We need. And, uh, <laughs> well, if I could be frank with you. No, I'm yeah. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, ding, ding, I, ding, ding, ding. I don't even know what the, uh, I have no idea what the history behind that mascot is, to be quite honest. I should. I should have, I really should feel, I feel like I should, I should understand the culture of how a random little town in central Indiana um, adopted, you know, the hot dog as a mascot. But yeah. Uh, yeah, there could be cooler. It's one of the, it's one of the best, man. Minutes, but uh, hey, there's that one, and there's also, and I forget what town it's in. There's also one in Indiana called the Jeeps, which I always thought was the Jeep? badass. Nice. Yeah, it's like nice. how yeah. cool is that, right? Especially yeah. in high school. Yeah, but anyway. you know, I actually have a dachshund. My oldest daughter has her now. Um, she's she's a senior dachshund now, but uh, yeah. So nice. I I identify with the love of uh, dachshunds. Awesome. Wiener dogs are cool. Yeah. yeah. They're awesome. So the Music Buzz podcast, Kyle, just to give you a little background, the three of us like to talk, but we also represent kind of three different areas in the entertainment business. Hugh on the graphic design and, and, uh, and that side, Dane on the musician side, me on the kind of the concert promoter and live side. So we're going to dig into those three areas, okay? Yeah, um, Dane, Dane's going to kick us off um, and uh, dig into some of that stuff. On no, that's cool, man. That's Brett. Let's do it. Yeah, Kyle, man, great to talk to you. Glad you're here with us today. Um, And I read read up on you a little bit, and we've already talked a few times about some other stuff, too. But um, when was it that you realized that when you first realized music was your calling? I read that you started as a violinist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that was important in the development of you know, understanding music, playing, playing violin and, you know, obviously led me to uh, then playing guitar, I think, because uh, that was the next move. But I think if I, if you take steps back, uh, historically, I think it kind of happened in church. Um, you know, I used to, my mom sings, plays piano, not professionally. Uh, and, I, you know, I, my family's kind of musical, 
um, just not professionally. Like everyone really appreciates it. Like my dad sings and can sing harmony and my grandmother did. So, you know, there's a little Presbyterian church, first Presbyterian in, uh, in Frankfort, Indiana that, you know, um, we would go or I would go as a, as a, as a kid um, and sit in between my grandmother and my mother. And I, rem- you know, they were singing harmony. Um, and I remember that's probably my earliest memories of starting to pick out um, different notes and how they, you know, their relationship to each other. Um, it's like, Oh, she's singing this and she's singing that. And there's kind of like a root note on the organ. They actually had this beautiful, uh, still have this beautiful pipe organ in there, which I um, always, always love to go back and, and uh, you know, in the holidays and, and uh, sort of get that nostalgic feeling again, like oh, sure. hearing, hearing the, that tone. But I think that's kind of where it started. And then the interest in violin sort of followed because I needed some way to, um, you know, uh, take what was kind of in my mind and, and put it, you know, I had, had no thoughts of playing guitar at that time, oddly enough. I think it was just kind of like, you know, my elementary school was, was starting uh, an uh, uh, orchestra. Um, they just sort of like incorporated the orchestra into uh, my elementary school, which really doesn't seem to happen that much anymore. It seems no. like budgets are getting slashed and, you know, instruments, uh, you know, are, are, are tough to come by and you go to schools, and they don't have real pianos anymore, it seems. So I think I feel like kind of blessed to have that. I'll just, I'll sort of leave it there. And then that, and then that, uh, as I got, as my hands started to get bigger physically, I started to realize that, um, I was not, I just really wasn't a great violinist anyway. I couldn't figure out the vibrato. That didn't make sense to me because you have to kind of do a circular pattern as opposed to vibrating the string up and down. And so that it, it wasn't what it was probably like late middle school, early high school where I kind of realized that, uh, you know, I, I got introduced to the guitar and that that was a much better fit for me as a player. As great. A so when you grew up in Frankfurt, like to go back a- to the early days again. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your first band that you played in. Um, first band that Garage I played bands. I think we were calling ourselves downpour or something. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a couple guys from school and, uh, we had a singer named Lester Gleason. That was really great. Uh, he, he was, he was great. And, I think all we wanted to sound like was Pearl Jam, basically. Mm. And that's all he wanted to sound like. I was going to say, what kind of music was down for? Okay. Yeah, yeah. This was this was in the era of, like, Jeremy was, you know, that's what... Early 90s. Yeah. yeah. And even Flow and all that, like, kind of owned the radio. So I, I think all we really wanted to do is just imitate Pearl Jam. And, and uh, that's, you know, we sounded like a bad Pearl Jam cover band. Did you record some stuff? Yeah, we did in Indianapolis. Um, I remember like having that feeling of like holding a cassette, you know, and we like some, and somebody knew, uh, you know, somebody's dad owned a printing press or something. We, you know, like, and we had the insert in the cassette. And like, I remember that feeling of like, we got a real, we got a record genuine, here. Man. Like accomplishment. You know what I mean? Sure. Like something's so, going to happen now. It's here. It's right tangible. Here. Right. There. Yeah, I can yeah. hand this to somebody, you know. That's coming from, you know, obviously the opportunity to go and do something like that is such a big deal at that age. Fast forward for us, if you will, for a second. And I, I know you recorded on that uh, Mick Jagger uh, solo album. That he yeah. Did, which was um, Visions of Paradise. Great yeah, song. Yeah, amazing. I'd love to talk about that too. Yeah. yeah t- tell us a little bit about, you know, here's the Kyle Cook that, you know, goes and makes a cassette tape, you know, in, in Indiana to the right. guy that's in the studio with Mick Jagger. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. And it wasn't that too long of a time span between that. Really, no, no kidding. Yeah. Pretty amazingly. That's what I'm brief. saying. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, like, like I said, not even a decade because, you know, we had that first album had just to give some context, you know, before I was 23, which would have been a decade of actually playing my instrument, you know, um, before the age of 23, we, you know, we had, uh, you know, almost a- approaching a diamond selling debut album. So it was just, <laughs> it was, it was absolute insanity. And I don't even think that, you know, now we can appreciate it because I, I, I try to go, man, if that had happened in an era like today where everything you do practically is documented online. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, 
I, I feel like I'm, I'm thinking we had, we had opened up for the stones and I'm trying to remember if it was before I did that session or after. And I think it might've been before we did a thing called rock fest in Dallas. It was at the Dallas motor speedway. It was this huge, crazy event, like three day event. Um, they were on that. We, and, and we, I think we played with them twice once I want to say on that. And then another, and then they asked us back to open up for them on, um, I'm trying to remember which tour it was. They had these gigantic gargoyles, and it started with satisfaction, like this bullet yeah. came to the Bre- front. Uh, Bridges is Babylon. Yeah, Bridges, Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to open up for them one time uh, at the, on the Bridges to Babylon tour. And um, so I'd already had that experience. You know, like, I think I was pretty cocky at the time, quite honestly. I think we all were because, you know, um, just the album was just – it just seemed like every single – Atlantic put out on that record was a hit. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were five top 10 uh, singles on that record and it seemed like they could have just kept going. I mean, we were, yeah. So we were, none of us were prepared for any of that, but um, yeah, we, we had an opportunity to open up for them. And I remember they, they brought us, you know, we, we all rolled up to the, the speedway and there were like, you know, corridors of like tour buses. Right. You know, we're like on the golf court, golf cars. And we're like, they're pulling us in and it's just like walls of tour bus on each side. We go in, they got like signs everywhere. Um, you know, Keith's bar that way, rehearsal room this way, mixed room that way. They were like literally like it was a village that they had set up for the stones. Yeah. Awesome. And it was like, it was like meeting the president, man. And it's important leading up to the studio. I think it's like meeting the president and it already was in our minds, but it was just, you know, amazing. The security guys and they'd pull us to a point and they'd be like, hold up, hold up, everybody, hold on here. And we'd stand there for a second and they'd bring us to another checkpoint. And then, you know, people in like earpieces and, and tuxedo or, you know, in like suits and shit. And we finally get there, line us up, and then they just bring the stones in and line us all up. And they were wonderful, man. I mean, they really, but Mick particularly uh, is just a real, you can tell that he is, you know, uh, he's made a real decision to be, the face of the band, you know, and, and to be the sort of ambassador of the stones, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of my first experience. And then we did a European tour, uh, where we were opening up for Bon Jovi. Um, and we were there for, uh, it was a UK run and we were there for maybe like two weeks and we, we did, uh, we opened up for them, but we did some, some headlining shows. We were just kind of starting to develop, a following in the UK. And that was the reason that we were there opening up for, uh, for Bon Jovi. And so we were doing, we were doing some legendary theater in, in London. I can't, I'm not sure if it was a Hammersmith, maybe I think it might've been the Hammersmith ballroom. Yeah. And we did, um, and we closed with Hendrix, um, or in our encore, we did a, a Hendrix song. I remember if it was little wing or purple haze or something like that. Uh, no, it was all on the watchtower. And I just kind of went off for several minutes at the end of it. And then Mick came back with like this whole entourage and was really complimentary. And then the next day I get a call from management saying that, you know, Mick would like me to come in and and play on the song that that he and Rob had co-written because they had, you know, um, I, you know, I think Rob was really riding high on being one of the most important songwriters on the charts at that point, you know? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, the Santana thing, you know, obviously from that. And then, you know, people like Willie Nelson, who is, I mean, when you got Willie Nelson, like reaching out to you to write a song, I mean, (laughs) you know, like something's really going, something's really going right with your craft. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so they had written a song and and it was like, you know, Mick's going to send you a car. My wife and I, my, 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 my ex-wife now at the time were, getting dressed to go out and have like a really nice dinner. It was like a day off. And I just get this call, like, you know, mix, um, like you come in and play in the studio, I'll pay you triple scale. He's going to send a car, but you know, it's going to be like in about two or three hours. And so I remember looking at my wife in this, you know, fancy hotel in London, like, and she's just like, yeah, you, you we're not going to dinner. You, gonna, gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I didn't expect him to be there. I know the story's getting long. It's going to, no, it's great yeah. story. Um, so I didn't expect him to be there. Right. I'm like, it's Mick. It's larger than life. Hmm. He answers the door of the studio and like with tea, you know, <laughs> um, greets me. And of course, you know, um, 
as like a consolation prize to my wife, I'm like, you know, wh- you got to come to the studio and meet Mick, right? I mean, that seems mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, of so course, I sort of yeah. cleared that because we just canceled all our plans for the day. And so he greets her and I, and he's like really charming. And I think I think I remember thinking at the time, Mick might actually steal my wife. That could happen. <laughs> <laughs> that could probably happen. Maybe it's not about the song after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> I started second guessing myself on that. So, um, so yeah, he's like really sweet and charming, or whatever. And and we go in, and the producer on the record. Um, uh, they had some amps set up and uh, Pete Townsend's amp was still set up from, from the night before. And so I played through Pete Townsend's amp, wow. which just made nice. that much more amazing. Yeah. Cause you had a bunch of like, it was like an all-star kind of record. We had a whole yeah, bunch of people playing on it. Record. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The but it's good record, record though. Still. Yeah. yeah. It was a solid record. I don't yeah. think they ever singled the one that, that, uh, that I played on that, that, that Rob co-wrote, but I think the the single on that record was the Lenny Kravitz, one of the Lenny Kravitz collabs or something. So let's let's uh, shift gears and go in to talk about the graphic side and the visual aspect of, of music in general and yours specifically. So Hugh, yeah. if, Hugh was going to you know ask some questions in that regard as far as album artwork and stuff. Absolutely, and kind of dig into that. Well, I have to confess by starting, you know, I am very familiar with your music. Uh, haven't been a follower, so that doesn't expose me too much to your catalog. So I, I, you know, I did my cheating, my, I cribbed today and found, I, I noticed a, a sort of a, a trend towards minimalism and simplicity, which I liked, um, you know, the band on the cover, you know, that kind of clarity is, is refreshing. Um, yeah. But I did, I was without regard to even knowing who you were at the time, I did love the painting for mad season. I thought that was a great, right, I was just about to say, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, a, the peacock on wheels. Well, it, it was also that that peculiar character. Yeah, but the character, um, yeah, the, the style of that was refreshing. It was new, um, and and I also know when I like something because when I look at a cover and I feel a, a remote pang of jealousy. It's it's <laughs> it, it's a, it's a reality that it's a good cover. But I do, you know, and I like the fact that your your videos are also very. They're very driven by kind of the honesty of performance, even though there's always kind of some sort of dark, melancholic kind of tone to even the lighting and the way you guys are are filmed. And of course, you delve yeah, into back to good. Back to good is is a, is a good reference for that. Unwell too has got a nice starts off with a kind of a you know an easily accessible um, personnel. But then it gets nicely distorted and it, you know, stays whimsical, of course, you know? Yeah, it does. Yeah. That's a, that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, I, and I think, which may be reflected in the, the music um, too, a little bit with the, the use of the banjo, even though it's kind of a dark song unwell. Um, something it's about very the, cool some, lick, man. Thank you, man. And that's, I mean that, that's double stop thing that you're playing on. That's not, that can't, that, that was a real banjo. Wasn't no. It? That was it's, it's a six like like a like a six string like banjo guitar or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, How drawn to the process? I mean, this is you know, I, I ask these questions because I'm always interested in knowing. Some band members are that they, they're musicians and they lean on anybody from the record company's art department. I mean, ZZ Top, they for example, they would lean on Kim Champagne at at Warner's to do the covers, you know, and some bands right. are very involved. Some members, really? some members really? more than others. Neil and I and Rush would be very much the allies for that process. The other guys were busy making music. How about you? Were you, yeah, hands on? I'd love to speak to that. Um, in the later years, um, so Paul Doucette, who uh, was the original drummer and mm-hmm. now is the rhythm guitar player. So we we we've lost one member um since the first uh the first three records and uh he was always and i still think is um kind of the driving creative force behind a lot of those things um now not not to the extent of like coming up with the designs and 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 actually directing the videos or anything but but really being someone who stayed up late i mean even like even you know he was always the last one to leave like when we were doing like production rehearsals 
in arenas. Like he was always the guy that was, you know, we were worried was going to be so tired for the opening night of a tour because he was literally with the lighting designers, you know, till four or five in the morning, you know, the night before, like trying to make sure that every little move for every song was. So yeah, Paul really, I got to give a lot of credit to him. Matter of fact, he was the guy that found that image of the peacock that you mentioned. Yeah. Suggested that he may have also been behind the choice or, or kind of helped push us towards that choice of the, the kind of heavy set guy with the cap on the, the first. Yeah. Fantastic. What's that yourself or someone Yeah, yourself or someone like you. Yeah. yeah that image that image has really just, you know, become synonymous with our band. It's, well, it's you know, kind of- it, it, it's amazing what simple, and, and that reminds me of a Joel Peter Whitkin cover, which is, you know, just quirky and, and bravely, bravely kind of n- not attractive, you know? Um, right. Well, you know, we, we so there's 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 a real um there's a method to the madness i mean i think behind at least that that first album so we you know the the title yourself or someone like you and i think if you look at the the trajectory of the band we have always been i i don't think anybody would disagree with the exception of you know rob kind of having that sort of next level fame with the santana thing with the smooth thing we have always kind of been a little bit of a faceless band in the sense that you know our music a lot more than you do our faces. Well, uh, and I think and, and that, you, know, we, that, that, you bring up an interesting point, and I think it's funny. I was I just got back from Europe, my wife and I did, and I was you know on this long flight from Paris to Detroit, and I was looking for something to watch, and there was something in the music documentaries thing. I'm like, oh, what is this? And it was weird that it was on the Delta flight, but it was a backgrounder that included Boston, REO, and Sticks, And it was kind of talking about how at the time music shifted from kind of these rock stars, these people that you knew into really like logos and songs. So it talked about more than a feeling. It was talking about babe. It was talking about, you know, um, roll with the changes, but I was like, and I, I know who's in these bands. Cause I love those bands, love your band, but you know, it really, to me, Matchbox 20 is like that next generation of those bands, you know, that's kind of like an, like an REO, a Sticks, a Boston, and that's bad. Yeah, I agree. You know? And I agree, yeah. What great company, but it was interesting that there was actually, you know, something on the flight basically talking about what you're saying. Or like Journey, you know what I mean? Absolutely, like, yeah, Journey. Like, right. I, I've, um, which, you know, I guess depending on who you ask is a good or bad thing, um, I've definitely heard. I've definitely heard people draw comparisons to our, our catalog to sort of like, you know, as like a modern journey. Are you uh, talking, are you talking like, music? Because going back, to yeah, that, I would say graphically, you guys were much more brave in your selfie-facing kind of, um, like I said, yourself and someone else in that painting um, for for Mad Season. Those are beautifully quirky and and they they didn't subscribe to that kind of sticks journey kind of corporate right logo based work that you would see a lot of with the van halens and so on bands that needed to have logos you know i got yeah well we i mean i think you know if you've ever seen us live or you know you when you get to know the band i mean we there was this there was just this kind of regular guy vibe with our band. That's what I, I Yeah. You know, was trying to be, you know, and, and even the sound of, you know, like we're not a proggy band, like, like, you know, like a rush, which is like very intellectual, you know, uh, very really so. pushing the, you know, really pushing the boundaries of what music can be. Right. And, you know, in songs, I mean, you know, a lot of our songs are very economical, you know, in, in the way they're constructed. Um, with the emphasis on hooks and memorable, you know, little memorable melodic pieces that you can either take away, like like you mentioned, like uh, whether it's the banjo look, which right. to reference that again, that was something that we spent working with Matt Serletic, who's a brilliant producer um, in his own right and a brilliant, you know, just musician in his own right. We would work very, very hard at in thinking about like, hey, Rob's brought this song to the table that we think is great. But now we have to, you know, now the next, now the craft is the arrangement, um, right. you know, and, and, and that's, you know, 
or the master, you know, the thing that, um, you know, I always likened it to like, you know, like, um, you know, you have to make a movie, right. But first you have a script, you yeah. have a good script, but the script, um, it needs set dress. People don't read the script. Yeah. People watch the movie and then that's what they identify with. And that's what they take with them for the rest of their life. So right. we always look right. at them, the making of the masters in that moment, you know, especially when we started getting really great budgets from Atlantic. I mean, we would spend some time on that mad season record. I mean, I think we took seven months to seven, eight months making that record, spent millions of dollars, which doesn't happen anymore. Um, we'd spend weeks on like the intro to a song, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, we, wow. you know, before we even get to the verse, it was just like, we, it has to be the right sound. It has to be the right thing. Like you were saying, right. when that comes on the first so like, it 20 seconds, it, yeah, it pulls you in and you know exactly what the, the song is. Just like an opening scene of a movie or something. Like, oh my God, I love right. this scene. And then you sit down on the couch and you watch the whole thing. So a lot of effort went into that. And yeah, it, it sure paid off for you guys. Millions of, millions of, uh, records sold later yeah I mean, I th yeah there's I a reason so. for that yeah yeah i'd like to believe that 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 time that was invested you know pay, paid off but but you know to to reference the graphic side of things when we chose that image there definitely was an intention behind that because yourself or someone like you was intended to be um almost there was a little bit of that because we were coming to that era of the alternative the, the almost like anti-rock star Era? Like war with the, the boy on the cover for you too. That struck me as very iconic. He was cuter than the man on your cover, but but I, right. I that's what I, adm I admire mostly about uh, the, the yourself covers because it is just it is just purely quirky and it's not it's not unsettling, but it's not attractive and it dares to be it dares yep. to be its own entity and and, and yet this, the music spoke for itself you make a good point about the economy of your songs and and the the structuring of your songs um therein lies the difference between a band like yours and rush because rush was about arrangement i think sometimes more than the song right you know? i agree with that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and that there was a unique situation because you had neil pert actually writing all the lyrics which is you know sort of Pretty heavy. Way out of bounds of how you know most most bands kind of work, but I think you know I think that image struck a chord because you know I think society you know like the social like like the cultural climate at the time was a little sort of like anti you know anti rock star like you know the, the totally. everyday person glamorizing the idea that the everyday person can be as important as you know, especially coming out of the 80s right which was all about like everything was everything was oversexed and glamorized you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah and uh and kind of surfaced maybe a little bit you know well, like i'm and, glad i was there but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you remember of it right <laughs> no that's what, actually no speaking to your your earlier comment about tenacity and craft and so on i was living in la at a time when it could have done irreparable damage to me to be there but i had the good fortune of being a workaholic and having a good work ethic so i i i really missed out on i did go to the roxy a couple of times and i i did witness salad bowls of cocaine and things like that but it was <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't something that I, I subscribed. Salad bowls of cocaine. <laughs> that sounds like a perfect, a lot, perfect song title. Why don't you guys get together after this and write Surely a song nobody called put any dressing Salad on Bowls it, of Cocaine. <laughs> Sorry. All the dressing. I'll uh, be quiet now. I, I kid you not. I kid you not. <laughs> Behind the velvet ropes um, sat a very dynamic rock star whose name will, will go unmentioned, but... He was flanked by some pretty outrageously beautiful women, and right in front of him was his bowl. So you knew that the the police commissioner and that club was pretty much in in concert with each other. Oh, yeah. He was dipping in the bowl too, I reckon. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so I have to ask the I have to ask the question that I have whether it's a band or a client and so on. I'm always interested in knowing musicians' favorite covers, whether they they are their own. Or just, you know, in, in history, what covers have spoken to you um, as being brilliant? You know, like for me, the White Album was a brilliantly cheeky and only the Beatles could get away with such a faceless cover because we are, after all, the Beatles. But um, I'd love to hear what you consider to be your favorite covers from history. 
I always loved Israeli gears. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, is it rubber soul or is it meet the Beatles? Is it, what, what was the, the four floating faces? The black and white with the, the lit lights on the side was yeah, from the side. That, yeah. That was meet the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meet the Beatles. Um, that always was, was always a striking cover to me. Always, always. Yeah. Um, and much emulated thereafter the whole yeah, half, totally. the half lit black face and white that exactly yeah did, did, well just the, this yeah the simplicity of using you know uh shadows and and you know in beautiful ways yeah. um but but at the same time highlighting you know highlighting the, the members of the band yeah yeah um yeah um that and uh, and then i don't remember which boston album it was but to sort of like the guitar spacecraft, yeah, the spacecraft thing, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty, pretty iconic and famous, yeah. I mean, you almost can't talk about record covers and not talk about Sergeant Pepper's. No, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. there's a lot going on, but be, I mean, I remember, I remember staring at that album as a kid because my my stepfather had it on vinyl, and you know, I remember just, you know, what would seem like hours staring at it and still finding new visuals you know so you know and then just all the mystique that was wrapped around you know right. like somebody's holding something and there's another head back there and it's there because of this and you know just all the conclusions that were drawn from it was just kind of speaking of salad bowls yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah <laughs> no yeah you it, it is definitely a, a phenomenal cover and and yet you know what's beautiful about that cover is it's technically so primitive and yet it's still it still was conceptually and and i think concept sometimes you know it overrides the the execution if i can ask you a question i don't want to derail this but how do you like you know talking about videos and you know just the importance of you know we've almost kind of you know we're living in this time right we're like and it's relevant it's relevant to the matchbox conversation because you know we were an mt you know we were one, I think one of the things that really contributed to our success at the time too was that you know it was kind of the height of MTV and VH1 and Absol- you know absolutely yeah you had that extra vehicle you know we kind of had the benefit of being successful in a time where you know television and the visual was really important and then the internet was also starting to become a factor yeah so we we kind of you know midway through our career started to benefit from the, you know, the digital side of things. Um, but now, you know, we look at it, we look at something like MTV and it's all reality television. They've changed the format. Yeah. You know, you see, CMT totally was good. hanging on for a minute and they still play videos, but you know, even they are going, you know, to licensing old movies and you know what I mean? Right. I have two daughters. I know you guys all have kids too. It's like, you know, they don't, Television is how is not how they they digest things. So how do you how do you feel about the importance of video, the role of videos? Um, First first of all, I was peripherally involved. I did art direction on Rush videos and so on, but I was never a video director. I I often wanted to be. I often thought I could be very. I I saw how much work there was involved in doing it. I also I also saw some of the the varying budgets involved and how much was expected. You know. Um, I spent so much money on videos. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I think one of the reasons you don't see videos as much now is, is people are too hip to being, because the Brits were very, very clear on calling videos commercials. They would call them commercials instead of videos. And I think that's a telling term because to try and sell any young person today music, they need to find it on their own. So if you package something up and make it too slick, that doesn't mean that if you do a YouTube piece and there's a performance, there's a section of performance in the YouTube piece, it wouldn't speak to someone, but it needs to come off as, you know, it's like watching Harry Styles um, singing on the the Howard Stern show. If you've never yeah, seen I saw that performance. Yeah, it's yeah. a great performance. And it, what's nice, what's charming about it, but telling is, you see how talented he and his band is, but it's right off the floor. And that stuff, I think, speaks more to people now than than a, a David Mallet video for, you know, and there was a couple of Russell Mulcahy and David Mallet. They did all of the Aerosmith, Whitesnake. They did. Right. And, yeah, Which, and, man, that, that, there was a run there with Aerosmith where their videos were just. Oh, yeah. 
epic many movies man yeah. i mean you know well, like, well like, and that that was during the get a grip era which uh, hugh did the uh, cover for the get a grip album oh shit, man and, that's a great cover too is that that's with the car right and that that no that's not me was that yeah. cow in indiana is that an indiana cow that's a henry county cow let's be okay the, sorry <laughs> yeah yeah you did so much great stuff you man I, i'm gonna i'm going straight to i'm you, you, you're next up on Google when we finish this up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at all your stuff. Oh, thanks. No, I, I hope you enjoy it. And yeah, it'd be, it'd be an honor to work with you on something. It'd be great. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, as it, you know, as it relates to the importance of that, I still, I still, it, it, you know, that like, like I was saying, like, you know, now it's sort of like, it's almost like we're back to the, the, the importance is on the single, uh, you know, almost like it was in the '50s or something where. You know, totally. the, the the art form around, which is kind of sad to me because I love making albums, but it just seems like, you know, um, the playlisting and, and people falling in love with the song is, is where it has to begin. Dane and Andy have, and I have talked about this. Rubbers, I mean, uh, Abbey Road or The Wall, those are, those, are, those are intended to be listened to in their entirety. But today, someone would go in and pick here comes the sun um, and a couple of other songs you come together, but the, the rest of the album will be left fallow because it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't get the long bar. It didn't get the long mm -hmm. bar of public approval. Um, so I, people can't hold their attention span is so much shorter now than it was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or right. Maybe we were just, you know, in our, when we were young in the sixties and seventies, you know, and you're looking at that album cover and, Right. Maybe rolling something on the thing that's if it was a double album yeah. cover or whatever. We're uh, getting out your um, salad bowl of cocaine. <laughs> oh, <how bad. laughs> um, but, you know, it's it, it's it's very uh, it's very telling. I think that that uh, that attention spans just don't. Well, uh, attention don't allow for that attention spans. And the fact that millennials often don't even know what a, C, a physical CD is. They right. they they've been brought up through that. Napster, the the now defunct LimeWire, I think it was called, where you could kind of peer to fear, peer steal and borrow and and loan music to people. Um, even iTunes, I, I I've coined this phrase innumerable times, but we're all feeding off the carcass of what used to be that industry we're talking about. Because even as a designer, if it wasn't for my legacy clients like Rush. And and Dream Theater, who still love the feel of paper and the smell of ink, you know, we would all be kind of do, designing for YouTube and designing for that two-inch square in the bottom corner of, of iTunes. You know, it's it's a very, a very different realm we work in now. But that doesn't mean the image isn't important. I guess is, is kind of the point I was getting to. It's Absolutely, like, I find myself, you know. It, really thinking about so if it's if it's an important show like i got a dream coming up and i'm going to try to help raise some money for a, a cool uh, venue some friends of mine own a masonic temple actually up in outside of grand rapids they get this cool little venue and when i tour solo i play it all the time so i'm going to go up and do that but you know thinking about like the you know the image that i put behind the post now i find myself thinking a lot more about that you know keith brogdon that is great that um he did um he did a couple cool um sturgill simpson records mm. um actually there's there's a cover it's a, look at a couple of the sturgill simpson uh uh covers i cannot remember the name of it he's kind of like this anti-country he's great country guy. He's, he's a cool artist yeah man. he's a super cool artist but like you know like music row just doesn't give him any love because you know it's like too cool for like country radio or whatever it's like real but country it, yeah yeah um well like he does a cover like smells like teen spirit with like a horn section you know what i mean like he, mm -hmm. he's it's like it's kind of some r&b stuff too yeah huh? he's, he's very eclectic some of it's kind of r&b yeah. yeah yeah and so i've been using his uh graphic guy for a long time but like i'll i'll you know i'll spend a couple hundred bucks on a post if i think it's important enough you right. know what i mean like i'll get with him i'll be like make sure he's got a couple a couple photographs that I think were great. I'll tell him what I think, you know, we're, you know, we're going for whether there's a theme and just kind of let him run wild. But like, I never thought that much about it before, you know, like when all these apps came out and you could do like stuff yourself, 
just find cool fonts, you know, I think a lot of us were doing that. Mm -hmm. And now we're, I, I feel like maybe there's a resurgence in the appreciation of somebody like yourself, you who really, you know, is artistic and understands um, the value of choosing different fonts or creating things that have their own, you know, uh, individual feel as opposed to just stuff that people can, cause now everybody can just grab stuff off the internet and like use <laughs> generic things. And there's know. also, there's also the opportunity. I mean, I appreciate you making that acknowledgement and, and I'd like to think there's some merit to what you're saying, but even my daughters, you know, one of my daughters has got her own business and I offered to do her business card and I, you know, I did a really good job of it. I thought, but she turned around and using her own online facility so she turned you down. She did. I, I was just. I was kicked just, you to the curb. I was dismissed. <laughs> did you show her like all the Rush albums and show her like you know all these like okay? No, right. Leave leave your name with a lady at the front. We'll get in touch. You know. Uh, there you go. <laughs> that's that's it's important to be humble. That's, that's why we had kids, kids man. Right? That's kids yep. for you. That's right. I mean, the reality is we also have to be we also have to be humble enough to understand it's the same thing with with arrangements is the same thing with writing songs like mm -hmm. you know sometimes you don't need the jazz chord you no, know what i mean like sometimes no. just the g to c is all you need yeah you know, the cowboy chords work they've always worked you know like and sometimes yeah. you gotta just because you know that there's you know this whole palette of colors that you can use doesn't mean you should no. you need to as right. well you know i've done some pretty elaborate and indulgent and, and complex covers for rush and I've also done a cover, I, I refer to them because they're probably one of the most freeing um, recording artists that, that allowed me the latitude to, and they, they coined a beautiful phrase early in their career called deviate from the, you know, to deviate from the norm. It kind of became their credo. They would never, they would try not to repeat themselves. Sometimes they would get stuck into stylistic um, redundancies, but we all do, I think. But, you know, one cover would be a, complex and then counterparts was a nut and a bolt and it took a little selling i i was convinced that that minimalism would work but um daring to be minimal and to, to be bravely sort of, um stripped down like that i think has its place so i i, I agree. yeah and i also think that when people do their own thing there's merit to that and then when you mentioned you know maybe possibly talking to me the the fun that I have is harvesting imagery from the music and harvesting some kind of theme that, that plays. Cause we're not dealing with an album with a front and back cover. We're dealing with CD booklets, which are commonly 16 to 40 pages long. So what do you fill the booklet with except yeah. right. ways to editorialize the music or to. to well, and what, and what happens out of that, going back to part of the earlier conversation, you know, with the, the image from the first matchbox record, that sticks in my mind. When I hear Matchbox 20 said, that image of that guy in the hat yep. comes to my mind. Well, sure. Hugh's no different in regards to the rush with the Starman. Totally. It really, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Hugh, but that wasn't intentionally created to be a logo, correct? Wasn't that just kind of became its own thing? That was just thematically tied to the to, to every man, the freedom of expression versus the red star of the evil federation. It was, I literally took man against federation and and made that into a logo it was very literal um but little did i know it was going to be adopted you know right that's what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. All, all of a sudden it, it takes a life of its own kind of thing how awesome that it was yeah you know? yeah, yeah. Cool. you know it's interesting and i know we spent a lot of time on that that cover but it, it it what's interesting about that shoot the fact that we chose they chose that close-up of of just him against the window sort of looking sad like he's trapped you know he, he's kind of like trapped or he's trying to he's outside trying to come in it's kind of like the vibe you right. get from that right um which does speak to the social kind of norms that we live in you know right um did you cast him or did, did you find yeah, him? yeah so we did yeah so there were there were he he was a model that was hired by some agency you know they were look we were looking for so what we were looking for and there was a whole shoot this is what's interesting about it, there was a whole shoot wow if you if you look in the inside of the cover you see a couple of the images that sort of will explain what i'm what i'm saying but the whole idea was so one of the singles is called real world which you mentioned right that was one of the ones i didn't co-write as well um real world you know rob talks about i wonder what it's like to be a superhero 
in this in that song. So one of the themes was t- was kind of taken from that so- that song. Um, this this idea that just the average person can be a superhero, right? Just which is yourself or someone like you, right? So it fit the whole theme. So you so we had we wanted him this kind of overweight guy in a in a cape in a Superman. He was in a Superman outfit, uh-huh. cape, and um, they just put this aviator hat on him. So he was here's this like you know pudgy guy standing there with the superhero thing looking all sad and they had this beautiful model like this just gorgeous italian girl you know slender and and and, and standing there and he's he's kind of like looking at her you know um longingly and like there's all these images like that and then it just you know that was kind of what the cover was going to be right it's like she was kind of like this unattainable beauty that mm. this you know this this overweight superhero guy was never going to be able to sort of like, you know, I don't know if they were trying to convey that he was going to save her or, you know, or, or have a relationship with her, whatever the deal was, but there's all these shots. And, but the one they end up using is just him. And all you see is the aviator cap. So you don't get any of that imagery. So we really, we really sort of did away with all of these themes. And, and, you know, and I think when everybody saw that image, they just, they felt exactly like what you just surmised right there, which is just, that's it. That says it. We don't have to second guess it anymore. Had you put the extra element in there, well, it may have spoken to the unattainable concept that you just mentioned. It would have lost its simplicity, and it may have right. on it, certain things, whether it's music or or imagery. There's a point at which that phrase comes into play. Trying too hard, you know, or and I, I'm guilty of that sometimes. I I, I love um, improbable reality, and I like being you know and i like to play with play with you know things that feel real but shouldn't be um and that's fun but there's there's also a place for just that one icon on the cover which is that man and i think it speaks you know as far as matchbox to you know the way we run the way we've worked creatively musically too i think it speaks to that because um we have been pretty good at kind of policing ourselves like we're um yeah band we're a band that's um there's can be a lot of tension when we're in the studio um there can be like everyone gets involved it, it feels like almost every little part people have opinions about things like i remember having to re recut an acoustic part for a song um where i, I was basically playing acoustic the entire time i was like the whole downbeat of the song and there wasn't much other instrumentation and i ended up having to re-record it two or three times because you know rob just felt like the feel wasn't the right feel for him to sing sing to or whatever like it was too swung or it wasn't swung enough right or those kind of things and it's interesting how those kind of tensions the way that we kind of fight to make sure that um you know all these voices are kind of fighting to 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 be heard so that it's you know ultimately that's what makes it a band which is maybe something that dane you know <laughs> working for for john is probably it's a whole and 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 when i work with john wait totally different thing right like john wait makes the last he's gonna make that decision. he makes the damn call you know yeah. what i'm saying and i'm sure that's yeah. how it is with with melody yeah, john- well, well definitely. I mean, it's 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 his song, so he's going to make that call, and he kind of likes to direct us. But when we get something going that is good, when the band gets into a thing, he lets us go. Right. He knows. Good. Good. Yeah. And he may say something like, "When we're done, like, well, it wasn't really what I had in mind, but I think we can make a record with that, or, right, or something right, like right, that." Right. You know. When what he really part. meant was, "Man, that was great." And then later on, he likes to say that was great. So. Yeah, because that's the dialogue, but, right? Like, like there's yeah, yeah, yeah. conversation going, and maybe it wasn't where you thought the conversation was was going to go, but that doesn't mean it's not great. And you know, right? Yeah, and that, he that's knows cool. that everybody and, and you guys were pro- doing the same thing. A band does that, and that's the neat thing about having a band all playing at the same time. It certainly is, yeah. or at least at least the rhythm section. You know, where you get that vibe, and you're you know you're chomping at the bit to make this thing happen. Yeah, that's a feeling that is getting lost these days when people make records. It's all about trust, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the greatest bands, the greatest musicians, I mean, they, there's a trust element, whether that's, 
you know, the band in studio, whether it's the live experience, whether that's the guy doing the record cover, whether that's, you know, whoever it is. To Kyle's point, though, um, a band has a sort of a different dynamic than, say, working with John or John Waite or John. Oh, sure. If you're a band like the Beatles and so on, I have 32 bootleg tapes of the boys at Epic Studios and Olympic Studios, and they definitely uh, interacted and they were very respectful, but there was uh, lots of arguments and lots mm. of back and forth and occasionally some pettiness, you know, just what about me kind of. Um, yeah, sure. Right. And a band needs, and to, to your point, a band needs to know how to get out of their own way and be that organism, which obviously the successful bands are like yours. So tell us about um, some of the moments over your career where you've been on stage and like maybe a special guest came out or you just found yourself, you know, kind of in a kind of in a geek out moment a little bit, you know, whether it was a specific venue or whatever it might be. Well, okay. So, and I think it was in that two week period of time uh, that I was talking about um, in, uh, in, when we were in England, when I, when I did the, the um, Jagger session, uh, we did um, Santana, you know, smooth was kind of eating, eating the planet at that time too. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Rob, again, Rob was, you know, at the top of the, of, of the songwriting food chain. And, you know, he just was just like, like Hey, you know, like Santana's playing at, uh, what, whatever arena it was there in, in England and, uh, in London. And so we went and, and, uh, I got up on stage and kind of, you know, like, cause Santana's the kind of like, he's that guy. He's, he's that jammy guy, you know, just sure. like, Oh man, you're here. You got your guitar, right. You know, like, and if you don't, we'll give you a guitar. Um, so, you know, he, he pulls me up to, to, to play and Jimmy page was backstage and I think he was trying to pull Jimmy. I think Jimmy ended up bowing out, but he was really trying to get Jimmy up. But I, I just, that was that was a revelatory moment because I think I'm sure if you ask my ex-wife, she would say I was a blubbering idiot. I remember it like I was really cool. Maybe I'd had too many cocktails, quite possibly. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. You know, in my mind, I was like very respectful. I'm sure if you ask her, um, were you nervous? Oh yeah, I mean, because you know, yeah, I mean to to meet. I was, I mean, and still to this day, I mean, I, you know, th- those, those Led Zeppelin records are just, uh, you know, um, they're like architectural masterpieces that you have to kind of continually go back to in my mm, mind. Right. Yeah, yeah. No question. As a member of a band and as someone who loves making records and just someone who plays guitar. So yeah, I think that probably stands out. So we're going to, we're going to end this podcast with the, uh, with the tune that you sent me, Ain't No Secret. Is the name of the tune, no baby? Yeah. Tell, tell us about that that tune before we roll into um, it. It's really just kind of so the album Wolves, the the, the first solo record, is really kind of a dark um, divorce album. You know, uh, <laughs> I was going to say my, my, that was a very that was a very brave record. I was checking that out today. Thanks, man. It's kind of like, kind of like a modern blood on the tracks or something. Oh, I appreciate that, brother. Yeah, I mean, I it's mean, really cool. And it, man, your vocals and st- on the the song "Ghost Towns." Yeah, the, the video that you yeah. got out. I was. I think you've got a really great voice. That also, it, there's something about your voice that you, you, it feels very real. Thank you. I mean, you can that the, the lyrics feel like you meant it, and Thank you, I got that just from first listen. I was, I was kind of amazed in the economy of your guitar playing on that. Oh, thank you. I mean, just the hooks and it, like it was like I'm going, okay, he's going to let rip something here, and yeah. you never did, man. And right. I applaud you for that. Thank you, man. Yeah, very nice. Great, yeah. great arranging and songwriting. I try to, I try to be careful not to enter into the shred zone too often. You know what I mean? Let me let me just point out real quick. So so Wolves was you know I went through a very contentious, kind of ugly, dark divorce, and it and it drug on for a minute. And it ended very poorly. And Wolves was an album that was more of a sort of a therapeutic uh, statement, really. And it was kind of a risky, artistic thing to put out there because it wasn't like, hey, everybody get up, let's kind of record. It was like, um, you know, look at look at my sad state of affairs and let me just dive into my own kind of 
Taro. It was your face value album, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and so I just decided, yeah, I'm going to put this out. And so this next record is a lot more, um, you know, upbeat and, uh, is, it, you know, a lot more uh, less personal. But that particular title, Ain't No Secret, is, is um, there's a lot more of acceptance of the, 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 the reasons that um, rather than being angry about what, you know, what the, uh, what led to the divorce, you know, there's a lot more of acceptance on the second record in your own time. And ain't no secret is just, uh, it's a little bit of a wink, wink that, you know, it, it's, it's no secret that you're not my drug anymore. It's no secret that you're not my love anymore. That, that, that we've sort of accepted the reasons that, um, things ended the way they did. And, you know, we have two, we have two daughters together. So there's that feeling that even when things are ugly, you have to figure out a way to maintain some kind of relationship or at least accept why things are the way they are for your kids. Been there, done that. I think that's what that song's saying. Yeah. And they're done that too. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great song. Well, thank you, Kyle, for joining us today. We certainly appreciate it. L- lovely. Finally meeting you, Dane. Lovely meeting you, Hugh. You too. Great to meet you, Kyle. You guys be safe. Take care of yourself, all right? Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us on the Music Buzz podcast. Thanks for chatting with us, Take Kyle. Take care. Thank you. See you, Kyle. Thank you. We're going to roll into Ain't No Secret by Kyle Cook. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Music Buzz podcast.
spring training is right around the corner. So come for the games and have a ball in Arizona. With world-class resorts, unbeatable dining and nightlife, amazing scenery, and endless outdoor adventure. Make your visit unforgettable. Plan your getaway at myspringtraining.com.